Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation as we continue our study of this book. We come to the end of chapter 3 today. You can flip to uh, Revelation 3.14. It's where we're going to pick things up this morning. When I began my uh, graduate studies at Regent College out uh, in UBC, uh, Chrislene and I moved from Abbotsford out to Vancouver. We found a little bachelor suite just off of campus. It was about a 20-minute walk for me from uh, from our apartment to to Regent. It was a cool little place, a little uh, being the operative word. It was just a little bachelor suite, but it was in the tallest apartment building uh, in that neighborhood. In fact, we were on the 12th floor. Uh, the, the building was 13 floors high. They called it the 14th, uh, but there was 13 floors, and we were on the 12th floor, a little bachelor suite, and uh, very small, like I said, but it was, it was really cool. It had windows from about your knees up to the ceiling and a view of 180 degrees, and we were the tallest building, so from, our, uh, from anywhere, really, except for the washroom, which was the one place with the door, uh, you had an amazing view, about 180 degrees. From, to the left, you could see the UBC golf course that I had to walk through to get to campus. Uh, in front of us, we could see not too many blocks away the Burrard Inlet and the North Shore Mountains. And then to the right, we could see Stanley Park in downtown. Amazing view. It was a very cool place to live for that year. The next two years, we, uh, we, we lived for cheaper in Abbotsford, house-sitting for someone. So uh, I drove past that place on my long commute day after day. But loved being in that place uh, for that first year. Uh, one occasion when I was off at school, I had gone uh, to Regent for the day. In fact, it was a day when I had a night class, so I wouldn't be home till late. Christine was home alone. And as is often the case in Vancouver, it was raining. Um, but it was also quite cold this particular day and very windy. In fact, the wind was so strong that it was threatening to blow the barbecue cover off our barbecue, which was out on our balcony and, uh, and, and, and away. So Christine uh, opened the sliding glass door, stepped out to rescue that cover before it blew away, and she slid the door shut behind her, and then she grabbed the cover. I don't remember, I think she might have thrown it in there and then closed the door and went to fix something else. But as she slid that door shut behind her, the latch, for some reason, shouldn't have done it, but it clicked shut. And she was stuck out on the balcony. It was a concrete balcony. She was underdressed for that moment. She was just stepping out there for a second. Bare feet and... and, uh, no, no jacket, no sweater, and the wind was whipping, and it was cold and wet, and I wouldn't be home for hours. And she had no way of getting in. And she began to get colder and colder and more and more desperate, wanting to get through that door. She, in fact, she, she tried calling down, but it was so windy that no one could hear. She was trying to get the attention of anyone going into our building. In fact, she, she told me, and this freaked me out a little bit, she got so desperate, she thought about crawling off the balcony and trying to get in our bedroom window, but remember, we're 12 floors up. Just the thought of that freaked me out. Finally, after I don't know how long it was, finally the wind died down for a moment, and she was able to get someone's attention 12 floors below, and they knew something was wrong, and they got the manager, and the manager and his wife came up and and they let themselves into our apartment and let Christine back into our apartment and began to try and warm her up and comfort her after this ordeal. She was at the door trying to get in, but she couldn't. This morning, we come to a passage where someone else is standing at a door, locked out, wanting to get in. That, of course, is Jesus. He's at the door and he's knocking. 
We come to this morning the seventh of seven letters in the Revelation, seven messages from Jesus to seven particular churches scattered throughout the Roman province of Asia. Uh, But they're not letters only to those seven churches, of course. They are letters to all churches. The title of this book, the Revelation, literally means unveiling. Uh, Jesus here through these Uh, these pages, uh, pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real, so that we can see what is really true. And what we discover, what we're discovering, is that there is more going on than we can perceive with our physical eyes. The revelation helps us to see both the present in light of the unseen realities of the future, and it helps us to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. Things are not as they seem. These letters, these messages are from the exalted, glorified Christ to the seven churches, these seven churches. The author is the Apostle John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, now quite old, in his mid-80s. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos about 40 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey in the Aegean Sea because of his faith. And on the Lord's Day, he's worshiping in the Spirit, and he hears a voice behind him, and he turns to see the voice, and he sees Jesus in all his glory. And Jesus commissions John, write these messages to the churches. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. We've explored six thus far. And as I said, though they are indeed letters, messages to these particular churches in their particular locations, in their particular time in history, they are also broader than that. There are seven because seven is the number of completeness, of fullness. Jesus is speaking these messages to the church everywhere at all times in history. The message in the first letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus calls the church to love as they did at first, to love one another, that they are to be, as his people, characterized by love. The message to this church in Smyrna, uh, about to suffer, Jesus' word, his call to them, is that they would not fear, but they would remain faithful in the face of what they're about to suffer, even to the point of death. The message to the church in Pergamum is a call to be champions for the truth, to hold on to the truth, to guard the truth, to protect the truth. The message to the church in Thyatira is to pursue holiness and to resist the temptation, the inclination to compromise with sin, to accommodate with sin. To the church in Sardis, the message is to wake up. Though they appear to be alive, there is no life in them. They have become spiritually complacent. And the call from Jesus to the church is to guard against complacency. And the message to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus call is this, to see before us the open door, the open door of salvation, the open door into his glory one day, and the open door of opportunity to proclaim the message of salvation, the hope of the gospel to a world that so desperately needs him. Today we come to the seventh letter, the seventh message, the church to the church in Laodicea. I invite you to follow along as I read Revelation 3, uh, verse 14 to the end. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write... These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But, do you, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Four things I want to do with you in the time we have left this morning. First, I want to provide you with a bit of an introduction to the city of Laodicea. There's some details, some things that would be helpful for us, will be helpful for us as we seek to understand this that we need to take note of. Second, I want to unpack Jesus' words uh, about himself as he identifies himself here in this letter. Third, I want to focus our attention on the reprimand that Jesus gives to this church, his words of rebuke. And then fourth, I want to highlight the amazing grace of Jesus that is evident within this message to the church in Laodicea. So first, some things about this city. Laodicea was one of three sister cities, all located relatively close together in the Lycus River Valley. The two other cities, at least one of them you've heard of, the two other cities were the city of Colossae, uh, to which Paul wrote the letter of Colossians. It was about 10 miles up the Lycus uh, River Valley uh, from uh, the city of Laodicea, and Hierapolis, which was just six miles away, across on the north side of the river. Now, we don't know anything for certain about the founding of uh, this church in Laodicea. It's likely that Paul never uh, actually visited uh, this place or Colossae. Uh, he probably didn't visit these churches, these cities. Uh, but a couple things we do know. Uh, Paul wrote letters to at least two of these three cities, uh, including Colossae, obviously the letter to the Colossians, and to this church in Laodicea. Paul uh, wrote to them. Uh, second, we know that the church in Colossae and the church in Laodicea had close fellowship. They related to one another. Here's what Paul wrote in the letter to the Colossians. In, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea. Those churches know each other. And then as he closes uh, the letter to the Colossians, we read this. After this letter has been read to you, see that it also is read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul wrote a letter to Colossians, which we have, and he wrote a letter to the Laodiceans. And these churches are supposed to read the letters that they each receive and then exchange them. Now, it's quite possible that the individual responsible for planting these churches is one of Paul's ministry colleagues, Epaphras. He's mentioned a couple times in Colossians. Uh, but nonetheless, Paul wrote to both these churches. Uh, we have the letter of Colossians, and the other letter is either lost, or perhaps we have it in our New Testament under a different title. And this is just an aside for those who'd be interested in this. The book of, uh, the book of Ephesians, actually, the earliest manuscripts do not say to the Ephesians. And if you read Ephesians, uh, one thing that is obvious is that it's a pretty general letter. There's not a lot of specifics. Now, Paul uh, spent a lot of time in Ephesus, and so we would expect some different things. So there are a number of scholars who think that the letter of Ephesians is actually the letter that was written to Laodicea. That's, that's an aside, but an interesting thing. Regardless, we know that these two churches existed back uh, churches existed in two of these three cities back during the ministry time of the Apostle Paul. And here Jesus speaks. He has a message for the church in Laodicea. A few other things to note. 
Hierapolis, which sat six miles away across the river on the north side, was famous for its, its mineral hot springs. People, uh, these hot springs were considered medicinal. They, they uh, were helpful for relieving certain ailments. And so people from across the empire would travel to the Lycus River Valley, to the city of Hierapolis, and sit in these hot springs. These waters flowed from Hierapolis towards uh, the city of Laodicea, and they actually flowed uh, and formed a broad waterfall, if you will, over a 300-foot cliff, quite broad. These waters would flow towards Laodicea. So from Laodicea, you'd look up, and it was a spectacular view because the, the minerals, the calcium buildup in there created this white crustacean, and it was just this magnificent view as these hot mineral waters flowed towards their city and spilled over the cliff. Uh, nonetheless, Laodicea of these three cities, Laodicea was the chief of them all. It sat at the crossroads of every road in that region leading to the interior throughout the province. And it was an incredibly wealthy city. It was famous for three things. It was famous first for uh, the, a breed of sheep that they had and raised there that produced a fine and very desirable black wool. Secondly, it was, it was known for its incredible wealth. It was the, they were the Swiss bankers, if you will, of the ancient world. Incredibly wealthy uh, and, and lots of money there. Third, Laodicea was a significant medical center. Not only were they close to Hierapolis and these uh, hot springs, but also someone in this city had created a, uh, an eye salve that helps treat uh, eye disease. Now, what we're going to discover as we make our way further in this letter is that these factors will play a role in, uh, in Jesus' words to them. Well, let's turn our attention now to Jesus' uh, description of himself, his introduction of who he is. To this point in the letters, each letter has provided for us, Jesus has given a description of himself that has largely arisen from uh, John's vision in chapter 1 of, uh, of the glorified Christ. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus is the first and the last, the one who died and is alive again. To the church in Pergamum, Jesus is the one who protects the truth and has a short, sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. To the church in Thyatira, Jesus is the one whose eyes are blazing like fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. To the church in Sardis, Jesus is the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. To the church in Philadelphia, Jesus is the holy one, the true one, who holds the key to the kingdom of David. Here, the description of Jesus abandon, abandons that vision from chapter 1 and instead, or, instead provides, Jesus gives a series of titles. Verse 14 of our text, we read this. These are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The descriptions of Christ up to this point have almost exclusively described what Jesus has or what Jesus does. But here, more explicitly than anywhere else, he tells us who he is. He is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the ruler of God's creation. But what does all of that mean? Well, first, he is the amen. Now, in our day, that word is basically simply used as a period at the end of our prayers. We pray and say amen, but, but amen is a significant word. It, it is a, an English translation of a Hebrew word that, 
that signifies something that is certain or something that is sure, something that is valid. Daryl Johnson writes, saying amen is a way of saying that something is utterly trustworthy, a foundation upon which to build. Jesus says that he is the amen, that he is utterly trustworthy, that he is the, an utterly trustworthy foundation upon which to build our lives, that his word is valid, it is binding, it is true. That in him we encounter what is really real. Jesus is the amen. Second, Jesus says he is the faithful and true witness. In Revelation 1, 5, Jesus was described as the faithful witness. Uh, To that now, true is added. And in chapter 19, John will say that he saw one seated on a white horse who is called faithful and true. Jesus is the utterly faithful witness of God. He perfectly reveals the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. He he is the true witness. Not true as opposed to false, but true as in genuine. When we see Jesus, when we hear Jesus, we see God, we hear from God. He bears true witness to who God is, to what God is like. Third, Jesus is the ruler of God's creation. The word translated ruler here uh, literally means beginning, origin, ultimate source. Jesus is telling the Laodiceans and he's telling us that, that all of creation had its origin in him and that all of creation has its purpose in him, that he is the ruler of creation, that he is over all things, that it comes from him, that it was made for him. To quote the Apostle Paul in his letter to their sister city, Colossae, words that they would have been familiar with, All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the maker of all things. He stands over all things. All things find their source and their purpose in him, which means apart from Christ, apart from Christ, we can never find the fullness, the satisfaction for which we long, for which we were created. We were made by him and for him. He is over all things, and apart from him, we are out of sync with how we were made. Jesus is the amen, the trustworthy foundation on which to base your whole life. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He reveals with perfect accuracy what God is like. Jesus is the ruler of all creation. He stands over all reality as both its source and its goal. Johnson writes this, Every cell of life works best when it operates in harmony with Jesus. This Jesus addresses the believers at Laodicea. This Jesus speaks... He's standing before this church with a message for them. Let's shift now to the third thing we wanted to do, and that is to consider Jesus' rebuke, his words of reprimand. Beginning in verse 15, we read these words to the Laodiceans on the lips of Jesus. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, most English translations translate it this way, but the language is a bit toned down from what the original says. The original sounds uh, more like what Eugene Peterson, how he puts it in the message. He he says more literally, uh, he says, you make me want to vomit. It's almost violent language, Jesus says to this church. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. These are strong words. He says says that they're lukewarm and... He's about to vomit them out. And why does he say that? What does this, why does this church nauseate Jesus? 
Well, because, he says, because of their lukewarmness, they're neither cold nor hot. Notice, Jesus does not rebuke them for losing their first love. Jesus does not rebuke them for allowing false teaching in their midst. Jesus does not love them, uh, does not rebuke them for blatantly compromising with sin. He, he does not uh, rebuke them for their complacency. He rebukes them for being lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now, I would suggest that these words have often bis, been misinterpreted. One of the challenges that we're presented with here is, is from the fact that it would seem at first glance that Jesus says, if you're not hot, I'd rather you be cold. That, that is, Jesus seems to prefer people who are ice-cold atheists or non-believers to lukewarm Christians. And we wonder, really, Jesus, wouldn't it be better to be at least a little warm? Is being lukewarm really less desirable than cold? But that is to miss what's going on here. It's to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. As has been the case in all of the letters, part of what Jesus says connects with some realities in the history or the life of that particular city, and that is certainly the case here again. I noted a few minutes ago that Laodicea is one of three sister cities close together in the Lycus River Valley. Now, there are some things that I already said about Hierapolis. Hierapolis, one of their sister cities, is famous for their hot mineral waters. There are hot springs. I did not mention to you that the other twin city, or sorry, sister city, Colossae, had this wonderful source of fresh, cold drinking water. But Laodicea, the chief city of the three, lacked both those things. They didn't have the hot springs, nor did they have their own source of fresh, cold drinking water. Laodicea, they had to pipe in their water through a system of aqueducts which meant a couple of things. The warm, the hot water from Hierapolis that flowed towards Laodicea, by the time it got there, it had lost its heat. It was just lukewarm. And the cold water from Colossae that was piped in through an aqueduct system, by the time it got there, yes, they could drink it, but it had lost its coldness and its freshness. In fact, any unsuspecting tourists who would visit the city of Laodicea and would come to the Water that was flowing there from Hierapolis might take a sip only to spit it out on the rocks. It was putrid. Hot or cold? I would contend that both conditions here, as Jesus speaks, are considered good. Cold water that brings refreshment, hot water that brings healing. Laodicea had neither. They neither brought healing nor refreshment. They were completely ineffective. They become useless, distasteful. Jesus threatens to vomit them out. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, recounts a story in which he came to realize that he was lukewarm. The story goes that he was in an audience where a lecturer was being, uh, a lecture was being given by a hardcore unbeliever. And at one point, the lecturer chided those in the audience who were Christians, saying this. He said, I, if I believed what some of you believe, I would never rest day or night telling others about it. Daryl Johnson writes, We have heard the greatest news imaginable, have we not? 
We know what really happened that first Christmas. We know that the baby in the manger is the word of God made flesh. The creator became a creature. We know that on Christmas Eve, God became a human being. The one who lay in the arms of that teenage girl is the one who effortlessly spoke the galaxies into whirling space. We know that what was happening in the career of Jesus of Nazareth. We know that in him the kingdom of God is invading the kingdom of this world. We know what really happened on Good Friday and why for all the agony and suffering it was Good Friday. We know that Jesus was not just a good man who was the victim of an unjust legal system. We know that he was the Lamb of God taking upon himself the sin of the world and taking upon himself the punishment that the sin of the world justly deserves. We know what really happened three days later on Easter morning. The powers of evil had been defeated. Death had met someone that they could not contain. The grave had lost its sting. We know that right now the resurrected one sits enthroned in the control center of the universe, reigning as king of kings and lord of lords. We know that any day he's going to come again and bring everything to consummation in the city of God. We know that any day he is going to break through from behind the veil of hiddenness and be revealed to all the world. We know all that and more. News worth shouting from the mountaintop. Neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm, I am about to vomit you out of my mouth. John Stott writes, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the church in the beginning of the 21st century than this. It describes vividly the respectable, nominal, rather sentimental, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. There was, in the life of this church, no zeal, no passion. No deep conviction, no wholehearted commitment to Christ. Lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. What is it? What is it that led to this situation, to this condition here in this church in Laodicea in the year 96 AD? What were the, what were the factors that, that contributed, that brought these believers to this putrid state where Jesus would have such strong words of rebuke for them? The answer lies in the character of the city itself. As I already noted, Laodicea was famous for three things. For their fine black wool with which they clothed the empire. They were famous for that black wool and the garments that came from it. They were famous for their great wealth. And they were famous for their eye salve for their med- as a medical center. Now with that in mind, listen to verse 17. Listen to Jesus' words. He says this, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The people of Laodicea, the city, were a a fiercely proud, self-sufficient, independent people. They felt secure because of their affluence. They were incredibly wealthy. I do not need a thing, they said. They were famous for their wool and the beautiful garments made from it. Famous the empire wide. They were the best dressed in the empire. I do not need anything. They had a great medical center, a medical school, and they were famous for this eye salve that helped heal people's failing eyes. I do not need anything. The people of this city were patting themselves on the back. They thought they had everything they needed to make it on their own. And evidently, the believers in this city have been profoundly, deeply shaped by the spirit of the place where they lived. 
There is great irony in the words of Christ. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The Laodiceans, poor? They were the wealthiest city. The Laodiceans, blind? They had this eye salve. They were the medical center where people came to see. Naked? They were famous for the garments that were made from their famous wool. Believers here fail to understand what's alarming is they're completely oblivious to their true spiritual state. Let's shift our focus finally to the amazing words of grace that we find in this letter. It is important that we note that although Christ's words of rebuke are certainly strong, and though we need to pay serious attention to them, they are not alone. There is within this message from Christ words of tremendous grace. Look at how Christ responds to them. He does not want them to remain as they are in this putrid state, lukewarmness. First, Jesus counsels them. He tells them to, how things can be different. He counsels them to buy from him what they need. He uses the language of commerce because they were a commercially uh, minded people, not because we can actually buy or earn these things from Christ. We see the same uh, kind of thing going on in Isaiah 55 where we read this. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Jesus says, come, buy from me what you need. You are poor, blind, and naked. Come to me and receive what you need. And look what he offers. He offers gold refined in the fire so they will be truly rich. He offers them garments of white to cover their shameful nakedness. He offers them salve to put on their eyes so that they might see. All they think they have, they lack. But in Christ, in his amazing grace, he offers them all that they need. The key word in all of this, key phrase, is from me. All that they need is found in Christ. What amazing grace. He promises them spiritual wealth, spiritual garments, spiritual sight through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through faith in him, through uh, fellowship with Christ. We receive all that we need. They can receive all that they lack freely from Christ. He says, come to me, buy from me, receive from me what you need. You cannot do this independently from me. You cannot live the Christian life in a way that is self-sufficient. You've been shaped by the spirit of your city. Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke. Why does he rebuke and discipline? Why? Because he, he wants to remake them. He wants to make them into the women and men that he created them to be. He wants them to leave behind the life of futility that they are living. He wants their joy. His command is twofold. Be earnest and repent. Repent simply in one decisive turn, act, turn. Turn from your self-sufficiency. Turn from your independence. Turn from trying to make it on your own. And be earnest. Make it a practice to live zealously for Jesus with passion, with conviction, with wholehearted commitment. 
But how? How can they become what they are not? How can they do what Jesus is calling them to? How is this possible? How can they become healing hot or refreshing cold? What we discover here is even more grace. Jesus is the answer. And he's right there waiting for them. Here we encounter some of the most famous words in the scripture. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. Generally, we hear those words applied in evangelistic context, spoken to non-believers. Here is where these words are found. Jesus speaks these to the church. Jesus is outside of the church knocking on the door saying, let me in. He is the one they need. He is all they need. But he has been excluded. Here's the root cause of their lukewarmness. They have excluded Jesus from their lives. They have been the church without Jesus. They have been blind in their self-sufficiency. Tried to live independently the Christian life to be the church independently of Christ. In his book, Christless Christianity, the Alternative Gospel of the American Church. Michael Horton writes these convicting words. I think that the church in America today is so obsessed with being practical, relevant, helpful, successful, and perhaps even well-liked that it nearly mirrors the world itself. Aside from the packaging, there is nothing that cannot be found in most churches today that could not be satisfied by any number of secular programs and self-help groups. To whatever degree Horton is correct in diagnosing the church in America, in the West, he says that the regular diet found in most churches, or in many churches, sorry, across America is do more, try harder. It's centered on people. It's, it's human-centered. But the church has largely lost the proclamation of Christ, the gospel, our desperate need for what we can receive only from Jesus. And churches are turned into largely secular-like secular clubs, self-help groups. That the church has lost Christ. What has happened to this church, that is what has happened to this church in Laodicea. They have lost sight of their ongoing daily, moment-by-moment moment need of Jesus. They've lost sight of the glory of the cross. They've lost sight of the glory of Christ, of who He is, and how His love and His grace they received through faith. And now, Jesus, no longer present in their midst, is, is outside of the church and he's knocking on the door, saying, let me in, open the door. And they have failed to notice. They've failed to notice that Jesus is absent from the very church. Jesus, in an act so incredibly full of grace, stands at the door and knocks he asks that they open the door to him, that they let him in. German theologian Karl Barth describes this moment a little differently. He says the door isn't simply closed on Jesus. They've, they've pushed all the furniture up against the door to keep Jesus out, and Jesus is outside with a cross trying to break in. He's knocking on the door saying, let me in. Let Christ in. Let me be the center And if we just open the door, he will eat with us. To share a meal in the ancient Near East was a very intimate event. I'm sure, in fact, I think with COVID, we probably would all, that's certainly one of the things that I miss most is being able to sit and eat with people. 
To eat together was an intimate act. It, it showed communion and, and fellowship. In fact, that's why the, the religious leaders got so upset at Jesus all the time, because he kept having meals with sinful people. It was an act of communion, of friendship. Jesus says, open the door and I will come in and we will eat together. We will enjoy table fellowship together. No doubt more is intended here. Jesus is pointing ahead to the wedding feast of the Lamb that we will get to at the end of the Revelation. Christ promises that if we open the door, we will enjoy intimacy with Him at His kingdom banquet. To those who are victorious, Christ promises the right to sit with Him on His throne. As I hear those words, I mean, the reality, what does that mean for us to sit with Christ on his throne. Uh, we're not that fully told what that entails. We will explore more as we move forward in the Revelation. But one image, one illustration that comes to my mind is that from when I was a father of younger boys years ago, there'd be a few occasions, never on the roads, so I know this is on film, so I don't want to get in trouble. But I would let one of my boys crawl onto my lap and take the steering wheel in a parking lot or somewhere not on the streets. And, and they just sat there, driving, steering, just beaming with huge smiles. So somehow, for those who open the door to Christ, we will be on his throne ruling with him. We will be with him. Do you see, do we see our desperate need for Jesus? Every day, every moment, the Christian life is not a life that we, we say a prayer, we cross a line, and then we're just, we just kind of live. It's a lifestyle. It's about being a good person. It's, it's something that we can kind of do on our own, independently, self-sufficiently. No. Do you see your desperate need for Jesus? Moment by moment, day by day, do we see our utter bankruptcy? As Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who, who come realizing that they've got nothing to offer. Do we see our spiritual bankruptcy? Do we treasure Jesus for the treasure that he is? Is Jesus becoming increasingly precious to you and to me? Is your love for him growing more passionate, more earnest? Or are we guilty of trying to live the Christian life without Christ? Are we attempting to live independently, self-sufficiently? We need Jesus. We were made by him. We were made for him. He loves us zealously. He gave himself to redeem us, so, to make us his. And here Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. He wants to come in. He desires intimate fellowship with us, moment by moment intimacy with us. He's knocking. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.